Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Faith Christian Podcast. At Faith Christian, our purpose is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information about Faith Christian, check out our website, fccnp.org, or stop by on a Sunday morning. We'd love to meet you. Now we hope you enjoy this recent teaching from Faith Christian Church. I got a question for you as we begin. Who in here has a child or a grandchild that's in preschool through fifth grade? Raise your hand. Okay, I see some hands. Here's what I need you guys to do. Get out your phones right now, okay? If you have a child or a grandchild, preschool for fifth through fifth grade. And I need you to go to fccnp.org and I need you slash VBS. I forgot that part. And I need you to register them for Vacation Bible School. It is going to be a great four days here at Faith Christian Church. Your kids, your grandkids are not going to want to miss this. Um, Larry has said that um, everybody has been here working. It is amazing. If you go downstairs into the kids' wing and look at one of the hallways, it's being transformed into a wilderness bridge. And they are working hard, and they are doing a lot of decorations, so your kids aren't going to want to miss that. It's more than the decorations, though. It's the time to spend and to learn and to grow and to find a faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why we invest so much into our kids. Um, it's important, and so please help us by registering your kids so that they can be a part of us. This summer, we are launching into a sermon series entitled Vintage Lessons from the Old Testament. Throughout the course of this summer, for between now and about Labor Day, we're going to be looking at different Old Testament people, and we're going to be doing some biographies about their lives. We're going to be looking and learning from them about what we can put into our lives from what they have done so many years ago. You know, it always excites me when we study things like this because the Old Testament points us to the need of a Savior. And I think these men and women that we're going to look at through the course of this summer do a great job pointing us to the need of a Savior in our lives. For the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a great example of leadership in the Old Testament. Leadership, I believe, is an important need in the church today. Several months ago, we were sitting in a leadership meeting, our elders and deacons, and we were talking about sermon series, and one of the things that the elders said to us was, we need to come back and we need to talk about leadership and what it means to be a leader in the church in 2023. You know, I believe the church is being pulled in so many different directions. In fact, you could even say it this way, I believe that the church today is under attack. And in many ways, it's under attack because of poor leadership in the life of the church. So I want to inspire all of us, whether we are a leader or a minister, 
or whether we're just a person in this church to grow in our leadership ability and to grow in our strength in what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And for the next few weeks, we're going to look at that from the book of Nehemiah. And we're going to look at that at how Nehemiah approached leadership. I love the old proverb, Proverb 29, 19. You have heard this proverb before, and you'll hear it again throughout the course of this sermon series. Solomon writes, where there is no vision, do you know what it, the rest of it says? People will, what? Perish. Now, I'm not trying to rewrite Solomon's proverb, but I think we could also say where there's no leadership, people will perish. Where there is no people guiding the ship and giving us direction, we will struggle. And so I want to inspire us to make sure we are being led and we are going in the direction God has called us to. As we begin this sermon series from the book of the old books of the Old Testament, we have to understand the Old Testament a little bit better. The Old Testament is divided up into five sections. We have the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They are the direction and the law that was given to the Old Testament people. Then we have the books of history, the books of poetry, the major prophets, and the minor prophets. In this history section, the books of Joshua through 2 Kings, it gives us the history of Israel and Judah before the exile. And in the books of Chronicles through Esther, we read of what Israel was like after the exile. But tucked right in the middle of that section, second half of the history sections are these books, Ezra and Nehemiah. They give us direction and leadership. To understand Ezra and Nehemiah, you have to understand the Old Testament context. Forgive me for just a minute for being a little bit of a nerd. I want to teach you for just a second. Not only is the Old Testament divided into these five sections, but we have to understand what the people of God throughout the course of the Old Testament went through. It began with the antediluvian period. That was the time, the first part of Genesis, basically from creation and the fall to the flood. And then we have the post-diluvian period, and that is after the flood. And then we begin the patriarchal period. That's when we read about people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And we begin to see how God raised up men and women to be standard bearers for God's people. But then stuff begins to happen. And we read how sin begins to go throughout the course of the world and how sin begins to change people's hearts and to change people's minds. And the Israelites, you know the story from the book of Exodus, they are sent into captivity in Egypt. And it becomes a period of bondage where the Israelite people, God's chosen people, are slaves 
to the Egyptians. And then Moses comes and leads them out of Egypt, and they go out into the wilderness, and they began to make their way to the promised land. God blessed them, led them out of Egypt, and you remember what happened, don't you? They began to sin again. They began to grumble. They began to complain to God. God, you just let us out of Egypt, but man, it's hot out here in the desert. God, where's the food? I'm so sick of manna. I'm so sick of, of water. And they begin to complain, and it begins this period of wandering in the desert. And then the period of conquest comes when they go into the promised land. Now, if you have been around the uh, church for a while, you remember all of those great stories from those periods of the Bible, from the Sunday school time and vacation Bible school. But then something happens again. After they go into the promised land, once again, they begin that vicious cycle of sin and servitude sorrow and crying out to God, God, why aren't you there listening to us? And God once again sends judges to help the people. And we enter that period of learning about all of the different judges and how God sent men and women once again to save his people. But his people over and over again, they get in that cycle they find strength, they find hope, and then they turn right back around to sin and being overcome by that. And then we read about people like David and Saul and Solomon that become great kings and great leaders. And the people of God, they are united under these strong leaders of that day and age. But then Solomon dies. You remember what happened when Solomon died? His son, Rehoboam, becomes king. But Rehoboam wasn't a strong leader. In fact, Rehoboam was just downright mean to God's people. And so the kingdoms begin to divide. The northern ten kingdoms, they become one kingdom. The southern two kingdoms, they become another kingdom. Those northern kingdoms, well, they just continued that cycle of bad kings. But the cycle wasn't just bad kings. Some of the kings were bad, but some of them were just horrendous. They were awful in the southern kingdom, they had some good and some bad kings. And once again, a period of 70 years of exile happens to God's people. And it's at that point that God established the synagogue, and it came into existence. But then we come to Nehemiah. Nehemiah begins to usher in a period for God's people of return and restoration to finding strength in God once again. Now, we've gone through a lot of history to bring us to this point of Nehemiah 
and what he has done for God's people. But we need to understand, Nehemiah looked at a problem. He went to God and he said, help me solve this problem with working in me and through me, God. And that's exactly what God did. When I was in college back in 1989, we lived in a small little town in southern Indiana called Madison, Indiana. It's a beautiful little historic town down on the river of uh, the Ohio River. I loved Madison, Indiana. There was a beautiful old church down in Madison, Indiana, First Christian Church. It was a Disciples of Christ church. And on Christmas Eve of 1989, just hours before their Christmas Eve service, the boiler exploded, and the church burnt. It was an old um, limestone building, so the outside of the church stayed strong, but the interior of it was just decimated. That summer, that church invited me to come as their summer youth minister, I was just right out of college, or right out of my freshman year of college, and they asked me to come and be their youth minister, and I came. I did VBS with them. I took the kids, the high schoolers, <coughs> excuse me, on different trips, and we did things together. We were meeting in another church's basement. But I learned a lot that summer. That church, it was a small church, they bound, bound together, and they decided that they were going to claim that piece of ground. And no matter what happened, they were going to rebuild. That's exactly what Nehemiah did. That's exactly what Nehemiah did as he began to hear the story of what was taking place in Jerusalem. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. It's going to be on the screen, but I want to encourage you, over the next few weeks, there's just a few chapters, I think it's 12 chapters in the book of Nehemiah. Take some time and read the book of Nehemiah, not just once, read it over and over again, and let the words and the teachings that we're going to look at begin to, what, begin to fill up your hearts and minds and begin to invade everything that you think about. Listen to what is written here. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Halakha, in the month of Kislev, in the twelfth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanai, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the providence are in great trouble and great disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Now you need to understand something here. Nehemiah is a descendant of Israel. But Nehemiah is working in the king's house. He is the king's cupbearer. Now, the cupbearer was a very important position, but let's, let's frame it in the right way. The cupbearer was kind of like a secret service agent in that day and age. 
Now, this particular Secret Service agent, he was the one that would be with the king. He, anything the king ate or drank, Nehemiah would eat or drink first. So if Nehemiah survived, that meant the king could have it. See what I mean? He was guarding the king, making sure that his food and his drink was secure. So Nehemiah, in many ways, lived in the lap of luxury in that day and age, but he was concerned about his people. And as some of his people began to come back and began to be in that area, Nehemiah had discussions with them. He's in the summer home of the king. But Nehemiah realizes the horrible conditions that his ancestors are living in. Now, we need to understand that this poverty and this destruction, there were two reasons why this poverty and destruction was there. The first reason was the Persian economic policies had destroyed the city of Jerusalem. It had just it had eradicated everything there, but I think there was a deeper problem, and that was because the people of God turned away from God once again. There were spiritual issues. Their focus, their desires, the things that they worked for, they were no longer the things that God honored and God wanted them to do. You know, some 4,000 years later, the church still is in that cycle, isn't it? We see it all around us today, where the church takes their eyes off of God and destruction and spiritual despair falls prey around them. But Nehemiah, he felt a burden for his people. And Nehemiah, a simple secret service agent for the king, decided that he wanted to help. I truly believe that this is an early example of what Nehemiah's character was built on. Nehemiah was more concerned with others and others' needs than he was with his needs and his desires. So what does Nehemiah do? Let's go back to the scripture in, chapter, in verse 4. When he heard these things, Nehemiah sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heavens, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before this day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's families, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees, the laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave to your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizons, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. 
They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to this prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in in reverent your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was a cupbearer to the king. Notice when Nehemiah is faced with a challenge, he is propelled to his knees in prayer. I am convinced that a man of character always goes to the source when there is a problem, and that source is God. In Nehemiah's day, a devout Jew would, sh- would sit in what was called Shiva for seven days after the death of a relative or a close friend. And in many ways, that's exactly what Nehemiah is doing right now. He is fasting and praying. But he didn't just mourn. He went to God with an awesome amount of grief and struggle. If you were to read Nehemiah's prayer in Hebrew, it literally says, Ah, now Yahweh. One commentator said, It is a groan to God of heartbreak and sorrow for what is taking place with his people. But he asked God to restore them, just like God had promised Even though they were still unfaithful, Nehemiah said, God, please restore them. You know, I'm glad that God is a God of restoration because I am convinced that every one of us that sit in this room, me included, need a restorer because we are so unfaithful at times. Each of us struggle with times when we don't know what to do. And we turn the opposite direction from God, don't we? Let's be honest. Sometimes we make choices that we know God wouldn't want us to make. But God, in his infinite love and wisdom, restores us and gives us hope. Nehemiah knew that the answer to his ancestors' needs could only be found in God and could be only be found in him reconnecting with God. Let's go on and listen to what takes place. Chapter 2, in the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Araxes, when wine was brought to him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the hearts. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why my face not looked sad when the city of my ancestors are buried and lie in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it that you want? Then, I love this, notice what he does. Then he stops and he prays again. And I answered the king, 
If it pleases the king, and if your servants has found favor in your sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Somewhere in the course of Nehemiah's groaning, Nehemiah sees that part of the answer for his people lie in what he can do. And he hears a call from the Lord. But there are two problems about rebuilding the city. Problem number one, Nehemiah, his job is a pretty important job. He's the cupbearer for the king. I kind of laugh when I read that first part of chapter 2. When the king is brought his wine and Nehemiah looks at him and Nehemiah is kind of a little upset, the king must have been thinking, well, wait a minute. Is it something you ate or drank? You know, think about that. The king had to be scratching his head saying, what's wrong with you? Because if you're sick, I'm going to get sick. He had a pretty important job. But there was another problem. You have to understand the history. The king had already been approached by the people of Jerusalem about rebuilding the wall. And guess what the king had said? No. Now, Nehemiah, he was with the king all the time. When the king traveled, Nehemiah traveled. When the king went someplace, Nehemiah went with him. When the king was in a meeting, Nehemiah was probably very close by because if somebody was going to offer the king something, Nehemiah had to be there first. Nehemiah knew that the king had already said no to rebuilding the city. But what does Nehemiah do? He prays and he broaches the subject with the king. He gives the king proper respect, but he also begins in a way that the king would understand his home of the ancestors that he loved lay in ruin. And the king begins to hear. We go on and reread these words. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will your journey take? And when will you be back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters for the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Aspa, the keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make the beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and the residence I will occupy? And because of the gracious hand of my God was with me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. And the king had also sent an army officer and a cavalry with me. When Sanibelt and Harim and Tobiah, the Amorite official, heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Notice what happens. Nehemiah asks the king, and the king responds. The king gave Nehemiah 
all that he asks for. It's interesting to me, Nehemiah just doesn't say, can I go? Did you hear what else he said? Not only can I go, but will you give me letters to get through safely by all these places that I have to travel? It's not like Nehemiah could go jump on an airplane and just fly there and have to give him his passport. No, Nehemiah had to have letters from the king and the king saying it's good for him to go through here. The king said, all right, I'll do that. And then Nehemiah took it even a step further. He says, not only can I go rebuild, will you give me letters, but will you pay for it? And you notice what the king did. He gave everything that he asked for. So here's my question. Why now and not before? Well, we could sit and we could think about it. We could talk about all different reasons, but my view is simply this, God's timing. Nehemiah is face-to-face with following God's will, and Nehemiah responds in the proper way. Over these next few weeks, as we study and learn these vintage lessons that Nehemiah teaches us, we will learn that the greatest lesson is simply following God. So I want to give you my sermon in one little line right now. The greatest leadership tip that I can give you today is this. When God calls... A godly servant listens and responds. If you want to be a people of God, if you want to be what God has challenged us to be, we have to listen for the still small voice of God. And when He calls, we have to be willing to respond. Throughout the pages of Scripture, we see that when God's people listen and trust and respond, God always blesses. One of the greatest gifts that I see that we have today is we're not in that vicious cycle any longer where sin and struggle happens. Oh yes, those things happen. But God sent his one and only son to die for us and to pay the ultimate sacrifice. We no longer have to build our faith on a place, a city of Jerusalem. We no longer have to build our faith on judges that are fallible men and women or patriarchs that teach us things but sin themselves. We no longer have to rely on mortals. We have the very presence of God who came to this earth to die and to give us life eternal. One of the greatest things that God calls for us is to simply have a relationship with him. Now, I know the Old Testament points us to our need of a Savior. The New Testament teaches us how to live as a follower of the Savior. 
but we have to find the bridge between those two, and that is having a relationship with Jesus. If you don't have that relationship, I want to challenge you to find somebody today to talk to about what it means to be a follower of God. That's what God is asking of you today. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for sending men and women throughout the course of history to show, it what, show us what it means to be a follower. And I pray today that we will wrestle with having that relationship with you. Father, help us this day to find strength and hope in you, in you alone. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I'm going to invite our team to begin to serve our communion time now as we begin to prepare our hearts. We talked about the greatest gift that God gave us today is that he sent his one and only son. And as we come around his table each and every week, we recognize that we are changed because of his broken body and because of his shed blood. When he paid that ultimate sacrifice for us, he gave us hope of new life. And he gave us strength in that new life. I know that some of you are still getting these emblems, but as you take these emblems, these cups, I invite you to take this loaf of bread and to recognize that this is the broken body of Jesus, changed forever because of his sacrifice. And you take this cup that represents his shed blood, that was poured out for each and every one of us so that we might have life eternal and we might have life more abundant in his presence.